Let us, for our communion service, turn to Hebrews, the eighth chapter, the first six verses. We will, Lord willing, return to our exposition of 1 Peter next week. And when we do, if the Lord blesses and we're able to do that, we will be turning to the fourth chapter of that book. But today, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with verse one. Let us pray before we read this portion of God's Word. Our Father, we ask in the name of the Savior, through whom alone we come, through whose merit we only would dare to come, we ask that the Holy Spirit, who has granted to us this Word of God without error, will so bless the sacred page to our understanding that the lost would be saved, that the saved would keep moving because we understand something of the grace that continues to draw us home, that those who struggle with temptation, with sin, who struggle, Heavenly Father, with uh, pain-wracked bodies, emotional stress, would find encouragement and that the people of God may gather around the table of the Lord with great joy and reverence and a deeper understanding of what our Savior has done for us, is doing, and will do. And these things we ask in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord, our great intercessor, Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you please take your copy of God's Word and stand, Hebrews chapter 8. We read the first six verses This is the Word of God. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises." The word of the Lord, please be seated. People of God, this is always a special time in the life of our congregation when we gather around the Lord's table on Communion Sunday, but also for those churches that follow a calendar, and you know that I do not believe that we must follow a calendar, but for those that do, Thursday was considered Ascension Day, and this is considered Ascension Sunday. Appropriate to both, we focus for our benefit on one of the great themes related to the ascension of Jesus Christ, this one point, 
the heavenly high priestly work of Jesus. The heavenly high priestly work of Christ is, according to verse 1, the point of the book of Hebrews. Now, please remember that if you take chapter 8, verse 1, and you also take chapter 13, verse 22, that in chapter 13, verse 22, we are told that the whole book of Hebrews is a word of exhortation. We are told in chapter 8, verse 1, that the point is the heavenly high priestly ministry of Christ. And so when we put those two things together, the whole book of Hebrews is an exhortation in which the heavenly high priestly ministry of Christ is the main point. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. It must be important then, indeed indispensable, and so let's spend some time asking why. Point number one, Christ our priest is sitting. Christ our priest is sitting. Verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. You'll remember that the book actually begins that way in chapter 1 in the first three verses. It says in chapter 1 of Hebrews, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews, then, these six verses that we're looking at this morning in particular, stress the enthronement of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, we read in verse 1. So what does this mean? It means that his mission is accomplished, uh, that there is the finished work of Christ, that it is done, that he achieved atonement for his people. He sits because he once was humble, but now he is exalted. The Jewish high priest never sat down in the divine presence in the Old Testament records, but our high priest not only sat down in the divine presence, but he holds sway over the universe as he sits regnant at the right hand of the Father. And the wonderful thing about this is that in verse 1, we're actually told we have such an high priest. Echomen, it's just a present active indicative. We have such a high priest. That is, you, believer, have such a high priest. Uh, you have him now. You have him permanently. You have him forever. F.F. Bruce put it so beautifully, his once completed self-offering is utterly acceptable and efficacious. His contact with the Father is immediate and unbroken. His priestly ministry on his people's behalf is never-ending, and therefore the salvation which he secures is absolute. Now, I would say, wouldn't you, that that indeed is a crowning point. And that's what verse 1 is telling us. We have such an high priest sitting, regnant, ruling, and we have him, people of God. We have him. That's the main point, what he is doing for us now. So he sits. 
But also we see the importance of this theme. Secondly, this is the second thing, because Christ our priest ministers in the sanctuary. Now verse 2 mentions the true tabernacle or the true tent. It is there in heaven, in the Father's presence. True simply means original, a cop, not a copy, not, not an imitation, because the Holy of Holies is heaven itself. In chapter 9, verse 24, we read, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so our Lord is already in that better country of which we read in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. He's blazed the trail so that we might follow behind him into the presence of God. And that also means that you, child of God, have access now to your heavenly Father through the merit of Christ, through his blood, through his righteousness right now and always. It will never be taken away from you. You have access into the presence of God. And it means that future inheritance of which we read, especially in 1 Peter chapter 1, Jesus has already entered into that place which awaits us and there ministers in such a way that the believer's entry, your, your entry into that inheritance is guaranteed. And so Christ ministers in the sanctuary. But also this theme is so important. Thirdly, here's the third point, because Christ our priest is interceding for you, believer. He is interceding for you. He is ministering in heaven for us. The argument of verses 3 through 5 is simply this. Had Christ remained on earth, he would not be serving as high priest. The Levitical system, that is the Old Testament priesthood, is obsolete. His ministry in heaven is superior to the earthly. The death of Christ rent the veil, closing the Old Testament economy. The earthly sanctuary was no more than a copy. The real sanctuary is in heaven, and his service in heaven is far superior to that of the Old Testament priesthood. And he's interceding for us. He has ascended on high. He's interceding on the basis of his finished sacrifice on Calvary, which will be stressed when Pastor McDonald preaches the passion narrative this morning, uh, this evening from uh, John's gospel. He's interceding on the basis of what he did when he shed his blood. Hebrews 7.27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. And it is for those for whom he died that he intercedes, that his merit cries out in intercession. Because he died for us when he pleads, his merit for us is on the basis of justice. Stephen Carnock, the Puritan, I've never brought this quote, several of them I bring today because they're so rich. Carnock said, he intercedes for no more than he hath purchased and may demand as a due debt. No plea can prevail against him. You see, he prevailed at the throne of justice is the point. Shall he not much more prevail at the throne of grace, asks Carnock? Shall he not much more prevail at the throne of grace by his intercession, since the mouth of justice, which gave life and strength to all, suits against us, is perfectly stopped by the merit of his death? 
to all of the accusations of the law against us, all of the suits that the evil one can bring against us, even your own conscience, are met by the blood of Jesus Christ and his merit and his death completely satisfies. And it's the value of that now that is the basis of his intercessory work that will bring you all the way to heaven. So how does this touch your life? Let me give you a few ways that this touches your life. It touches your life, first of all, because he appears in heaven in God's presence in our stead. There he is, my great high priest, in my stead, in my place. Secondly, he exhibits an accepted offering for our sins, completely meritorious. Thirdly, his elect children for whom he intercedes cannot perish because he died for them, rose for them, ascended for them, intercedes for them, and will come again for them. Fourthly, he is interceding for his chosen who have yet to believe. Perhaps some here this morning you've yet to believe, but he intercedes, assuring that his people will believe. Fifthly, his blood continues to avail for our sin. Sixth, he delivers us from temptation and leads us homeward when we fail. Seventh, he protects us from the accusation of the devil. Eight, his intercession enables us to grow in grace and guarantees our perseverance to the end. Nine, he maintains the bond of peace and our communion with God. Ten, he makes our service acceptable to him. You know that service that you sometimes render and you say, oh, how pitiful. Well, he makes it acceptable through his perfect merit. Eleven, he presents our prayers in perfection to the Father. Those prayers you don't even know how to put together sometimes, he presents in absolute perfection before the Father. As Thomas Watson, the Puritan, put it, prayer as it comes from the saints is weak and languid, but when the arrow of the saint's prayer is put into the bow of Christ's intercession, it pierces the throne of grace. He ever lives to make intercession for us people of God in these ways and more. It touches your life on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It touches your life every day. And this one who intercedes, who died for us, he must be heard. He must be heard. Again, uh, Karnak, the infinite worth of his prayers results from his divine nature as well as the infinite worth of his passion and being the intercessions of a divine person, they are as powerful as his sufferings were meritorious. He says that in a sermon on 1 John 2, 1 and 2, this old Puritan. But how powerful that is. A divine person is interceding for you. His sufferings were meritorious. His intercessions are omnipotent. And so he must be heard for you for whom he now intercedes, people of God. I think this is incredibly wonderful. It's not incredible, I believe it, but it's, 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 it's beyond my comprehension that God would give me such a high priest. Well, this is important fourthly, this is our fourth point, because Christ our priest's ministry of intercession is superior to everything that preceded it. Now, here we're dwelling especially upon verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Uh, 
So he is the true and the final mediator. Now this word mediator that is used here in verse 6 was used commonly in the day in which uh, the New Testament was written. We have the papyri, that just means the little slips that people wrote common everyday things on that we sometimes have discovered. In the papyri, it's a common word. In legal con uh, contracts and transactions, uh, brings the idea of a surety, one who uh, bears the debt of another, or sometimes getting both parties together and bringing agreement. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And this is what the mediator has done, and this is what he presents before his Father, the reconciliation that he has achieved and accomplished for us by the shedding of his blood. John Owen puts this so beautifully, to come unto God by Christ for forgiveness and therein to behold the law issuing all its threats and curses in his blood and losing its sting, putting an end to its obligation unto punishment in the cross, to see all sins gathered up in the hands of God's justice and made to meet on the mediator, and eternal love springing forth triumphantly from his blood, flourishing into pardon, grace, mercy, forgiveness, this the heart can be enlarged unto only by the Spirit of God. Did you follow the imagery in that wonderful quote? You have the idea of the law of God issuing forth all of its curses, but when it meets blood, the blood of Jesus, then it's satisfied. The threats and the curses are, are no longer valid because all of our obligations were put on this mediator who shed his blood for us. And God gathered up all of our sins in his hands and put them on Christ, the mediator, in our place. And therefore, now, when we come to Jesus, we see eternal love springing in triumph. We see pardon and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit can enable your heart and mind to be enlarged to receive this wonderful truth of the gospel. You see, he is a mediator of, verse 6 says, a better covenant with better promises. In the old covenant, do and live. In the new covenant, live and do. Christ fulfills all the conditions of our acceptance. And so there are many ways in which we could say it is better because it is a new covenant. Just as we celebrate this morning, the new covenant in his blood and in verse 6, it says more excellent and uses the word better twice because Hebrews is relentlessly presenting before our eyes the superiority of Jesus Christ and saying to you, believer, just look, look, look away from those things that are weighing you down. Look, look at this incomparable Savior. Will you this morning take this to heart that Christ who died for you once for all ever lives to make intercession for you? presenting the value of that blood so that, so that through all the ups and downs of the Christian life, he is drawing you all the way to heaven. But let's be even more precise so that we may benefit even more. What are the characteristics of the intercession of Christ? So that's the fifth point, the characteristics of Christ's intercession. Now, you will not find that only in these six verses. You'll find it throughout the book of Hebrews. And I delight in bringing these to you. It's not original with me. It comes from one of our Scottish divines, William Symington, 
And if you're a reader of these old writers, you see that he also is leaning on the Puritan Carnock, but it's all from God's word. And what, what Symington says is, from the character of the advocate, from the, from the character of Christ, from the character of the advocate, we may judge what will be the qualities of his advocacy. So what are the characteristics of Christ's intercession? Let me give them to you. First of all, his intercession for you is skillful intercession. You and I aren't skillful. We don't even know sometimes how to pray. We're ignorant, but he is infinitely skillful. Also, it is morally pure, completely morally pure intercession because he is without sin. He's impeccable. It is compassionate, compassionate intercession. Do you remember back in chapter 4? I'm sure you do. Verses 14 through 16, we read of that compassion. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, it is a compassionate intercession. Robert Trail says, there is no groan riseth from a believer's distressed heart but it is immediately felt at the tender heart of the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand. Compassionate. He, he's interceding for you with omnipotent compassion. Sometimes you have compassion, you can't change anything. His compassion is all-powerful compassion. But also his intercession is prompt. He's never absent in his place. The people of God always know where they can find him. He's ever at the right hand of God, waiting to undertake what they commit to his charge. His intercession is earnest. He's never cool. He doesn't take a day off. He doesn't say, well, I'm not going to intercede for you right now. I just don't feel like it. No, no, he loves you with that earnestness, and he presents the merit of his blood with that earnestness that we would expect of a Redeemer who died for us and rose again. His intercession for you is authoritative intercession. Uh, he has a commission from his Father to do this. Uh, it is prevalent, and that means it prevails. Uh, he asks for nothing, says Symington, for nothing for which he has not paid the full price of his precious blood. And so it must prevail. And his intercession for you is constant, 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 constant ongoing. So, people of God, your high priest, the characteristics, skillful, morally pure, compassionate, prompt, earnest, authoritative, prevalent, constant. I would say, child of God, that you are really loved, wouldn't you? God did not need us to express His love. God's love was fully expressed in the unity of the Godhead, the, the sacred persons, the three sacred persons of the one Godhead. God's love for us is not grounded in anything outside of Himself. It is sovereign love. He has loved us freely, having determined to love us from eternity. No sacrifice was too great to save us, and it required the sacrifice of His own dear Son 
and he loves us still and always will. God loves you in providing the mediator to go to the cross for you. And he loves you in providing that one who died for you to now intercede for you as your risen Lord. And now there's a throne of grace erected for you. And you can always come to it, always come to it. And you can come and stay and never leave because this your Savior did and is doing for you. Trail says there's more grace in the promise than there can be sin and misery in the man that pleads it. There's greater grace than your sin. And you can plead your need before the Father through your great high priest. Our Lord is no longer on the cross. He's gained a crown. He now dispenses his grace that he won for us on the cross. And he does that as your intercessory high priest. Well, let me say some things in conclusions, not a brief conclusion. Do we have, do we not have the greatest encouragement as we come to the table of the Lord this morning? Believers, behold your great high priest. He's in heaven for you, living, interceding, prevailing for you. Come to the mercy seat. Is it sin with which you struggle? Come to the mercy seat. Is is there some temptation that is overwhelming? come to the mercy seat? Is your, is your body in pain? Are your emotions stressed? Do you need persevering grace? Come to the mercy seat. But also, I want to address those who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ who are here this morning. And my unbelieving friend, you need this mediator who died for sinners, who lives for sinners. Go to him. Come to him and ask him to save you, and he will. You know, John Bunyan, um, John Bunyan was the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the greatest books ever written in the English language, even unbelievers will say that. John Bunyan went through a great time of, of, of just deep conviction before he came to know the Lord Jesus. He was so deeply convicted, he said he'd rather be a toad than a man because at least a toad doesn't have to give an account to God. And so he went through all of this great conviction of sin. And then one day, here's how God brought peace. Uh, The peace of the gospel began to take hold of his heart when he was struck suddenly with the truth. My righteousness, and I'm quoting Bunyan, my righteousness is in heaven. Jesus Christ at God's right hand, and God looks on him in my place. Sinner, thou thinkest that because of thy sins and infirmities I cannot save thy soul? But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not on thee, and will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. When you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are trusting an all-sufficient Savior. You have no righteousness, none of us, we have no righteousness of our own, but there he is. He's my righteousness right there, Uh, regnant, ruling, reigning, interceding for me by the right hand of God. He's all my righteousness, all of it, all of it. I have nothing of my own. He is all of my righteousness, and that is your need in the presence of a holy God. You need righteousness, only the righteousness of Christ through his perfect life, his death on the cross, woven for us on the loom of the cross, 
imputed to your account. And now on the basis of that, pleading for his people before the throne of God. By pleading, I simply mean the value of his blood speaks for us. That's what you need. And so may God bring peace to the heart of some lost sinner today that you can see in Christ, this one in whom you put your trust. Now, people of God, will you please hear one more quote? I've overdone the quotes on purpose this morning. Uh, They were just too wonderful. Um, But hear one of the old authors on Christ's intercession, and that will end our time around the Word this morning. Christ entered into heaven, not without blood, to appear in the presence of God for us. He goes to the portals of the upper sanctuary, holds in his hands the memorials of his sacrifice. At his approach, the celestial gates fly open. He enters in the name and on the behalf of his people. He opens and no one can shut till all his redeemed and chosen have followed him thither. And then he shuts and no one can open either to invade their peace or to pluck one of the countless multitude from their happy abode. The permanent continuance of the redeemed in the state of glory stands connected in the same manner with the intercession of Jesus. He is priest forever. Not only is the everlasting glory the effect of his intercession, but it is the subject of his everlasting intercession. He ever liveth to make intercession. The perpetuity of heavenly blessings and the acceptance of celestial services must all be traced to the source. Not a ray of light, not a smile of favor, not a thrill of gladness, not a note of joy, for which the inhabitants of heaven are not indebted to this intercessor before the throne. Remove this illustrious personage from the situation. If if just in your imagination for a moment you could remove him. Remove this illustrious personage from the situation, divest him of his official character, put out of view his sacerdotal function, and all security for the continuance of celestial benefits is gone. The crown falls from the head of the redeemed, and the palms of victory drop from their hands. The harps of gold are unstrung. The shouts of hallelujahs cease forever. Nay, heaven must discharge itself of its human inhabitants, and the whole be sent away into irremediable perdition. But no such appalling catastrophe need ever be feared. Christ ever liveth to make intercession. And so if there's fear in your heart, child of God, true child of God, there's fear in your heart that maybe the crown can fall, maybe the, 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 the palm of victory can fall from my hands, maybe, maybe I can be plucked out of the Father's hand. No, 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 you need never fear that because you have a sufficient sacrifice, completely and utterly, altogether, infinitely sufficient sacrifice in Jesus who died for you and in his resurrection. It was sealed by the Father. It was made plain to all. And now in his, in his ascension life, the value of that means, yes, though you struggle, yes, though you are weak, yes, though you are not strong, his intercession is going to bring you home forever and ever 
and ever. And so, people of God, come to the table and remember his death and cling to his risen power and delight in the heart in his intercession and know for certain that he fulfills all his promises and he brings to completion the work that he has begun in your heart. And God's people said, Amen.